I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7 this morning as we continue our study through this book, our series called Fearless. And today uh, we are going to be looking at portions of four chapters. And so I may just need to say to everyone at this point, fear not. Um, We're going to be seeing some well-known and some lesser well-known stories And if you stop to think about it, you would realize that Joshua contains many stories. And I want you to just to think briefly with me about the stories we've already seen. We've seen stories about a prostitute and some spies. We've seen stories about a nation crossing a river at flood stage on dry ground, led by, guarded by the presence of God's ark there with them. I mean, incredible, incredible miracle. We've seen stories about the circumcision of the men of an entire nation. And uh, this was the only picture I could find to represent that story that was appropriate. Um, And if you missed that week, Pastor Chris Martinez will be happy to fill you in on all the details uh, of that one. We've seen stories about a nighttime encounter between a general and a mysterious heavenly being. And we've seen stories last week about Jericho's mighty walls collapsing after God's people shouted. Now today, we're going to see more stories. We'll see a story about how hidden sin damages God's people, a story about how God gives his people second chances. We're going to see a story about the importance of prayer and and seeking God as we make life's decisions. And we're going to see a story about how God displays his power when his people trust him enough to make audacious requests. Now, here's a question. Why are stories like all of these in the Bible? I mean, why doesn't the Bible just tell us the facts? You know, just give us a list of rules to keep, principles to follow. Here are the 100 things Jesus wants you to know. You can just check them all off. Why do we have stories like these in Joshua Stories that are sometimes confusing and hard to understand. I want to answer it in this way. A couple of months ago, I was reading ESPN magazine, and they had a story on a man that you know if you like to play video games. He goes by Ninja. He is one of the world's leading Fortnite players. And if you don't know uh, what that means, you'll have to talk to someone much younger than you. And uh, in reading this story, I learned, and some of you knew this already, Uh, you didn't need to learn it from an article, that you can watch videos on YouTube of expert video game players playing video games. They are called video game walkthroughs, and people record themselves playing video games, and then like, you can go online and you can watch them playing the video games for hours if you want to. I did a search, and there are over 72.8 million of these videos. Now, I have to tell you, I asked the question, how far removed from reality is this? <laughs> I mean, you're not playing a video game yourself. You're watching someone else play a video game. Why would anyone want to do this? Answer is, there's a very good reason. When you watch someone else play, you learn from them. You learn their strategies, you learn their shortcuts, you learn their special moves, and you see their mistakes and you can learn from them. You learn how to play the game better. Now, there's a huge market for this. 
Ninja, whose real name is Tyler Blevins, he actually earns over $1 million a year uploading videos of himself playing video games. And some of you are thinking, hey, there's a career I could try. Uh, Maybe this is the success path for me. I don't know. Well, he's actually not the only one. There are a number of other people who make a lot of money uh, uploading videos of themselves playing video games because people like to learn from the experts. Now, I want you to follow me. Stories like those we read in Joshua, the stories that we read in other parts of God's Word, they are in the Bible as a kind of life walkthrough, as life walkthroughs for us. See, as we read these stories, uh, we're watching other people as they seek to trust God, as they seek to follow and obey God. You watch them learn faith lessons as they encounter huge challenges in their lives. And this is exactly what uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 6 tells us about the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul, thinking of the Old Testament, writes these words. Now these things took place as examples for us. See, we, we learn from the examples we see in stories like those we find in Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, the nation of Israel faces a number of real problems. And sometimes they give us good examples. Sometimes they don't. And the Bible, it's interesting, doesn't always make clear which is which. I mean, think about this. The Bible really is a work of art. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, and it is all true. But it is also great literature. And, And like great literature, the Bible doesn't simplify things. The Bible isn't a Hallmark card or a Lifetime Channel movie. The Bible is not a children's story. And so, to understand these characters, to to get what's actually going on in the story, you need to enter into the story. You need to learn the context and and try to see uh, what these people are experiencing, to try to live and to breathe the story with them. And as we do that, we're able to participate in the the life walkthrough alongside of them and learn the lessons that God has for us. Now, with that in mind, I want to encourage us to jump in Joshua chapter 7 through chapter 10. And just so you know, we're going to spend more time on chapter 7 and 10. And here's the first thing I want you to see. Joshua 7 shows us how sin short circuits God's power and blessing in our lives. This chapter shows us how we can sometimes be our own worst enemies. Anybody ever feel like I am my own worst enemy? Can I get a witness right now from? I mean, sometimes we just do this to ourselves. And you 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 might read this story at first and find it kind of depressing. Uh, Last week, if you'll recall, we we saw God perform one of the most amazing uh, military conquests ever. Israel conquers Jericho with those mighty walls without ever lifting a finger. I mean, just think about it. Remember, the people did nothing. They just showed up. God did it all. Joshua 7 is right after this, and it shows us the next battle. And they come to a city called Ai, and it is a tiny town compared to Jericho. And yet we read that they lose. I mean, there's no way they should have lost. And in this battle, people die. And Joshua gets on his face before God, and he cries out, Why, God, it's almost like you were fighting against us. Why did we lose? And Joshua gets an answer from God in verses 12 and 13. God says, that is why 
the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies because they have been made liable to destruction or more literally doomed to destruction. God says, my promised land people, the people I promised to defeat giants with, they are now doomed to destruction. God continues, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. That which is devoted is among you, O Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. God tells Joshua, someone has stolen something that belongs to me. That's why you have lost, and it's why you will continue to lose, because you are now doomed to destruction. You see, God had told his people when they entered the promised land that he had called them to conquer, that he would be the one doing the fighting. And that's really what we saw best exemplified last week in Jericho. They didn't defeat Jericho by their military power or strategy. They just walked around the city in silence for six days. You remember that? I mean, and by the way, can you imagine how freaky that must have been to those people in Jericho? I mean, you're watching thousands of people just walking around your city, circling your city in in complete silence. And they do that for six days. And on the seventh day, they do it seven times. And then all of a sudden, out of the silence, they all yell and the walls fall down. Now, here's the point. No one would look at that and say, what an amazing military strategy. They would say, Who in the world is fighting for these people? And that was the point. God wanted to demonstrate that it wasn't their strength. That victory pointed to God. And since God was the one doing the fighting, God is the one who receives the spoils. See, if Israel took any spoils the way that other nations did when they conquered, they would be implying to the other nations and even to themselves and and even to their children that it was their power that won the battle. And God wanted it to be clear. The battle is mine, so I alone will take spoils. Do not touch any of it. This is about my name. This is about my glory. It is not about you, not about you getting some stuff. In fact, if you look back to Joshua 6, verses 17 to 19, God gave those instructions that they were to follow about Jericho. It says, The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Don't touch anything. If you touch it, you will die. But as Joshua 7 opens, we're told that someone has taken spoil for himself. And his name is Achan. And he is confronted by the leadership. They find the spoil hidden in his tent. The end result is tragic. He and his family are stoned by all of Israel. But what we see here is that the power of God that defeated the mighty walls of Jericho was stopped dead in its tracks because of this sin. Did you see that? God's power was short-circuited. And it's not because the power wasn't there. It's because the connection was broken. 
It's kind of like this. Have you ever gone home like in the summer, it's a very hot day, and you go into your house, and it's so hot, you, you wonder what is going on. You go to the thermostat, you see that the air conditioner is not working, and you think, oh, no, this is horrible. If I have to call an AC repair guy right now, it's going to cost me hundreds and hundreds of dollars. But have you ever discovered more often than not, if you would just go to the circuit breaker box and flip the switch, it'll come back on, right? That happens a lot of times. See, the the power was there. It, It only seemed like the AC wasn't working. The real issue was a broken circuit. See, what you're seeing in this story is that God's power is always there. It's always available. But sometimes the connection gets broken. See, this story is in Joshua to show God's people what sin can do in our lives, how sin can sabotage and short-circuit the things that God wants to do in you and through you. Now, let me show you this. Two points I want you to see under this heading. First of all, sin short-circuits God's power in you. Now, Achan's greed just dried up his spiritual passion. He probably wasn't a bad guy. But his greed got in the way of God working, and it dried up his passion for God. Look at verses 20 and 21 in chapter 7. Achan is here recounting, confessing his own sin. It says this, Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, that was like the Nordstrom of that day, um, When I saw 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. And one of the ways when you're reading the Bible that you can kind of do study and start understanding what is going on is to always pay attention to the verbs. And in this passage, verse 21, there are four verbs we see. It says, I saw, that's verb one. I coveted, verb two. I took, verb three. And then hidden, verb four. See, why did Achan take what was forbidden? The verb translated, I saw, in Hebrew means to gaze. He looked long enough to count how much spoil was there, to pick things up and figure how much they weighed, to look at the tag on the garment and see where it came from. He gazed until he coveted. And when he coveted, he took what didn't belong to him. See, it wasn't that He didn't believe in God. It was just at that moment he became consumed with a passion for these things more than he was for God's glory. I think Achan knew that it was sin, but he lost self-control. And that sinful impulse, his greed, crowded out his passion for God's glory. This is so important. You need to understand this. When I say that, that sin short circuits God's work in you, you need to understand that what God is most doing in you, what, what it means for God to be at work in you is that he is cultivating a passion for him and for his glory in you, in your heart. To have God work powerfully in your life means that you have a growing love for him, that you are growing more and more satisfied in him, even when things in life are not working out the way you may want them to. It means that you are dedicated in every way, body, soul, 
time, talents, treasures. You are dedicated to His glory and to His purposes. And sin short-circuits that passion. That's what sin does. That last verb, hidden, is also repeated in the following verse for emphasis. See, this is usually where our sins take us. We end up hiding what it is that we have done wrong. We, we, we bury it. We try to conceal it for other people. And I can say with confidence right now, as I look across a room with this many people here, that some of you are hiding sin in your life. There's something going on in your life, and you know it's wrong, and you've tried to bury it. You're trying to conceal it from other people. You don't want anyone to know about it. It might be that debt that's building up because of your unrestrained spending. It could be an addiction to alcohol or to porn. It could be a runaway temper. You rage and you're so angry just at home, kind of in private. It might be those sly, gossipy comments that we make, sometimes even at church, and they tear down other people. It could be your refusal to be generous with God, to give back to him in the way he's commanded you to do so. Our sins are hidden, and they may be hidden from everyone. It may be that no one else knows. They're hidden from everyone. Everyone but God, because God always knows. See, sin always short-circuits God's work in us. And do not miss this. Sin will eventually destroy us. That's why God takes sin so seriously. You see, sin cuts us off from the giver of life, and as a result, we die. The good news, though, is that we do not have to be cut off from God. We can move from death to life. That's why Jesus came, why God gave us his only son, and Jesus died for our sin. That's why Jesus took the punishment that our sins deserved. He received God's judgment. He absorbed God's wrath against our sin. And when we are God's children, we get reconnected to that life, reconnected to God's power, reconnected to God's blessings. And we keep that connection flowing as we repent of our sins when we sin and we confess those sins to God and receive God's forgiveness. Don't let sin short-circuit God's power and blessing in you. But also notice this. This story shows us that sin short circuits God's power through you. Think about this. Because of one man's sin, because of Achan's sin, 36 people died. And they didn't do anything. This is a sobering thing to ponder But the Bible tells us that God's activity in this world is in some ways contingent on our attitudes and our choices as believers in regards to our own sin. That's what Joshua 7 shows you. It's also what Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 shows you. That's what the prophet writes in this chapter. He says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. God can't hear. God can't bless what you're asking him to bless because your sins have separated you from him. 
It's all through the Bible. Matthew 13, 58 says that Jesus wanted to do many works there, but could not because of unbelief. Their unbelief hindered God's power. Jonah 2, 8 tells us that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that, that could be theirs. The grace was there. It was yours, but you forfeited it. James 4, 3 says that our prayers are hindered because of our greed and our idolatry. 1 Peter 3, 7 says that many of our prayers as husbands go unanswered because we aren't treating our wives with honor and consideration. You know, some of you, you have someone in your family and you really want to see God work in their life. Question, what if I told you that God's work in your family had something to do with you and how you live? What would come to your mind? What if I told you that this church, God wanted to do more through us in Tracy, Mountain House, and Lathrop, but the problem is with us. Your sins have separated you from God's power. You know, a lot of us look around at our country and we're distressed by what we see all around us, all the strife, all the violence, all the sin. We are torn up about the moral revolution going on around us, about abortion and so many other things. But you know, when you look at the Bible, God usually says the problems are with his people. Judgment begins at the house of God. If we had clean hands and pure hearts, God could use us more than he can now. So question, what do you want to see happen in your family? And it needs God's power, and you haven't seen it happen yet. What if the issue was with you? What if the issue was with you and your neighborhood and your community? What if you were short-circuiting God's power? Now, I know this is not always the reason, of course, but what if? Do not let sin short-circuit God's power and God's blessing through you. That brings us to Joshua chapter 8. And this chapter shows us how God gives second chances when we repent. Anybody want to say amen about right now? See, after Joshua and the people obey God at the end of chapter 7 and they bring God's judgment on Achan, God gives them another chance. God shows them grace. And this is Joshua 8, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. And so Joshua 8 shows us this story of how the Israelites, they're now following God's plan to conquer Ai. They set the ambush like God says. They work it to perfection. They completely destroy the city. They put to the sword everyone living in it. We are told 12,000 people. And it's clear reading Joshua 8 that God is rewarding his people and God is blessing their efforts. But this raises 
a difficult question. And some of you may have been thinking about this through this series. Maybe you're thinking about it right now. It's a question that has troubled many people over the years. It's a question we face all through the book of Joshua. People read this and they say sometimes, well, was this like a divinely ordered genocide? I mean, how can we say that this is God's word when it talks about stuff like this? Richard Dawkins, who some of you know about, he's a a best-selling author. He's a very, very famous atheist right now. Um, He writes, because of passages like this, these words, he says, the God of the Old Testament is a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And if nothing else, this proves Richard Dawkins owns a thesaurus. (laughs) So here's the question. What about the holy wars in the Old Testament? Well, this is a complicated uh, question, uh, worthy of a lot of attention, but let me just give you three words to consider as you think about it. The first is the word authority. I think you would agree with me that the rightness or wrongness of certain actions is, is based solely on whose authority stands behind them. So, for example, if you started writing checks on behalf of your company, would that be wrong or right? Well, the answer is it depends, right? It depends on whether or not you have that authority. And when it comes to life and death, no one on this earth has this kind of authority, but God does. And no one can take that authority to themselves. God gave this for a unique time to Israel with clear instructions never again to be repeated. In fact, after this period of the conquest, Israel is directly forbidden to ever do this again. Israel wasn't even allowed, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but they weren't even allowed to keep a standing army as other nations did. And in addition, what you will notice if you're paying careful attention in these stories is that God does most of the fighting. God is the one who knocks the walls down. We're going to see later on today, God is the one who sends huge hailstones down on on other enemies. Why? Because God doesn't want this to be resting on the shoulders of his people, Israel. This is his work. It is his authority. Second word is judgment. See, this is not about genocide. This is not about race. It is about judgment on the Canaanites. God had said very clearly that the Canaanites were being judged because of their evil. And the Bible and and history tell us that these were some of the cruelest, most oppressive, most violent, most wicked people ever to walk the planet. They even sacrificed their children alive to their idols, to their gods. They burned them. Now, I know that these people living so long ago may seem very far removed from us. But would you feel any differently if this was done, say, to ISIS or to the Nazi party in the 1940s? See, this was all about 
judgment. In fact, uh, back in Genesis 15th chapter, verse 16, God tells Israel that there is a certain part of the land that they cannot have yet because the people who live there aren't wicked enough yet. It's about judgment. The third word that I want to bring up is, is the word race. But I want to bring it up to say again that this has nothing to do with race. There are two ways we know that. First of all, as we've already seen a few weeks ago, God spares Rahab, who is a Canaanite, a woman from Jericho, just because she repents and believes. And and the implication there is that he would have spared anyone in Jericho who would have done that. And they all knew uh, about who God was from the stories they had heard, just like Rahab. They just didn't repent. She just was the only one who responded. Secondly, in the book of Deuteronomy... God told Israel repeatedly that these same things would happen to them and worse if they committed the idolatry and violence and wickedness of the Canaanites. Now, you still may say, well, okay, I I get all that, but what about the innocent people? I mean, if no one else, certainly the kids that were there couldn't have been much at fault. You know, one of the things that we tend to forget about in our individualistic culture and mindset is that there is always a communal dimension to our sin. When you sin, it never just impacts you. It always impacts other people. For example, if I sin by cheating on my wife, my kids, innocent of that, would suffer for that. In this case, these kids are suffering for their parents' choices just like ours sometimes do. But there's another more important sense in which God says that he will never ultimately hold the innocent accountable for the sins of the guilty. See, it ends up being that from God's perspective, eternity will will more than make up for whatever suffering any of us go through here on earth. And see, the truth of the matter is this. We don't like it, but it's true. All people eventually die. This is a reality that's a little closer, more personal to me right now. But it's always true. All people eventually die. So in a sense, when the innocent get caught up in things like this, it can be, it can be like God is just collecting and receiving them early. And any suffering and any deprivation that they experience here will more than be made up for there in eternity. Now, I understand that this very brief explanation will not fully address all the questions that get asked. I also know that there are entire books that have been written to deal with this question. And I would be happy to talk to you about this if you'd like to recommend resources, if this is a a deep burning question for you. And if you ask me any really complicated questions, I will refer you to Pastor Jay at jmills at southwinds.org. You can talk to him. So... Joshua 9. Joshua 9 shows us why dependence on God matters. See, as Joshua and the Israelites are mowing down city after city, the leaders in a city named Gibeon, which is not very far away, hear about all that, and they're very worried that they're next. And so they hatch a plot, and their plot is about fooling Joshua into thinking that they are coming from a people far, far away. But they've come to Joshua because they think that Israel's God. He's really cool, and they want to be a part of Joshua's team. They want to join his team. 
verse 3 in chapter 9 says, However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. So what are they going to do? Well, verse 14 and 15 tells us, The men of Israel sampled their provisions. I have to tell you, why do you need to eat dry, moldy bread? I can tell that it's dry and moldy by looking at it, but that's what they did. They sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. So instead of praying and seeking God's faith, instead of depending on God for wisdom, Joshua on his own makes a treaty. It's a very foolish thing for him to do. And it just highlights for us this question, why does dependence on God matter? Well, it matters because we need to make wise decisions to live well in this world, right? And wise decisions require God's wisdom. How many of you have discovered that in your life, that you need God's wisdom? And wise decisions that uncover God's wisdom always require prayer, See, many of us are probably right now facing big decisions in our lives. And the question is, will we make good decisions? Will we make wise decisions or will we make bad decisions? And the answer is, depends. Are you praying about them? Are you making decisions on the basis of your own intelligence? Or are you seeking God's wisdom and God's direction? See, we can learn from this story here in Joshua chapter 9. That brings us to Joshua chapter 10. And Joshua 10 shows us how God works in amazing ways when we pray audacious prayers. I love this chapter. I want to pick up the story in verse 5. And it says this, Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us. Because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. You see, Joshua's mistake is now coming back to haunt him. He's made a treaty with the Gibeonites. It was a mistake because God had told Joshua that he was to rid the promised land of all the Canaanites and in making this promise this treaty with the Gibeonites he was compromising the very thing that God had told him to do he made this mistake because he was overconfident didn't ask God for wisdom he screwed up but he had to honor his word he had to honor the treaty and the first thing I want you to see here is something that really is referring to what we're about to read, okay? But you can write it down now, and it's really good news. It's really good news. Here it is. God's miracles are not rewards for those who have lived perfectly. Isn't that good news? I mean, God's miracles, 
They're not just given as rewards to people who do it right all the time. That's so good for so many of us because many of us, we have messed our lives up. And there are some of you right now and you think, God won't help me. God won't come to my rescue because I am in a situation of my own stupid making. I don't have any hope. That's how you feel. But I want to tell you today, this is not true. Throughout the Bible, what we see is a God who is a loving father, who is full of patience and full of mercy, who longs to display his grace in the life of anyone who would reach out to him for help, anyone who would trust him, look to him. He works miraculously in the lives of people, even people who have screwed up. So I tell you today, on the basis of God's word, whoever you are, you are not without hope. Here's how this works out here, verse 7. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. Verse 9, after an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Machedah. Verse 12. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon. O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Wow. Isn't that incredible? God starts working. He, he throws the enemy into a panic. And in the middle of this battle, the Israelites are succeeding. They're winning. But Joshua realizes that even though he's winning decidedly, the time is running out. He's not going to be able to finish winning the battle. Some of these people are going to get away. The sun is going to go down before the battle is over and he can complete the victory. He, he doesn't want to have to fight him again. And so he thinks to himself, oh, If the sun would just stand still, if the day would just last longer, I could finish this job. And then he has this bright idea, pun intended. He says, why don't I just ask God to do that? And so he prays. I mean, think about this. God, would you make the sun stand still? Does that qualify as an audacious request? I think so. I mean, this has never happened before. In fact, you won't find any other place in the Bible where God says anything like, I mean, if you're in any kind of trouble, just ask me. I'll make the sun stand still for you. Just ask me. It'll happen. Nowhere else. It's just that Joshua, he thought that this was what they needed. You know, if you recall back in Joshua chapter 1, when God is preparing Joshua and the people for what's ahead of them. And he, he's giving them marching orders. He tells them, you remember this, Joshua, go into the land. And he <clears throat> repeats this command several times. He says to him, be strong and courageous. You remember that? And when we read that command, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Doesn't it sound kind of redundant? Be strong and courageous. Sounds like the same thing twice. But in Hebrew... It's actually different nuances. 
of a similar idea. Be strong does mean to be courageous. But the word translated courageous has the idea of taking a dare. So God says to Joshua, go into this land and and Joshua, take a dare on me. See what I will do if you trust me. And that's what Joshua is doing. He's fighting and following God's commands. He's, He's fighting as hard as he can. And as he fights, he takes a dare on God. Now, Joshua has no knowledge of how the sun works. He doesn't doesn't know probably about the earth's orbit around the sun. He doesn't have any knowledge of the physics involved. He was just trusting God to do something amazing. How did God actually do this? Well, we don't know the truth. It, It really is. I mean, did God literally stop the rotation of the earth? I don't know. Some of our scientists would say, no way, that's not possible. And they would continue to explain how that was not possible. Most of us would just hear, yeah, yeah, blah, 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 blah. We wouldn't understand what they were saying, right, when they explained it. How did he do it? Every once in a while, a zealous Christian will try to demonstrate that if you study the astronomy charts, you go back far enough, you will discover these anomalies. And there, there's this time where there's like these nine missing hours in the history of the earth, and they are accounted for right here. You ever see this? No? Well, you should really pay attention to the Internet more. <laughs> I don't know is the answer, really. But I do believe God did it, however he did it. Maybe God stopped the rotation of the earth. Maybe God created a mock sun. The point really ends up being he is God, and he can do whatever he wants to do. I mean, he called the whole world into existence. And if he did that, don't you think he can do whatever he wants? I mean, if there is a God who spoke... And the universe flashed into existence. I think he can handle adding a few hours to a day. The word, when you think about it, whatever happened, however it happened, the word to describe Joshua's request is audacious. He literally took a dare on God. And what we are seeing here is this. You can write this down. God's work is done in response to audacious requests. You know, we have asked as a church that God would allow us to transform the spiritual landscape of western San Joaquin County. We have asked God to allow us to have 1,000 adults in small groups. These last two years, we have asked God to supply our needs so that we can impact the next generation by expanding our campus and reaching our region so that lives of children and children yet to be born will be transformed. Audacious is something bold for God that stakes its success on God's willingness to work. And we serve a God who loves audacious requests. As I study God's word, I'm convinced that our primary problem is not that our plans and our prayers are too big, but that they are too small. Most of the time, truth, they're focused on ourselves, right? We pray for ourselves. Or when we do dream things for God, oftentimes what we dream is too small. 
this chapter tells us God wants us to dream great things for him. And this is what we should be trying to do together as a faith family. Do you see? I think the best verse actually in the whole story is verse 11. I skipped over it a moment ago. Here's what it says. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky, and more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. See, God is watching the battle from heaven, and in the midst of all that's happened, in the midst of all that he's doing, God says, Joshua, you're missing some of them. They're getting away. And so God responds by hurling large hailstones down on the, I mean, this is like, you know, Hollywood special effects stuff going on here, right? Just try to imagine these guys are running down the road and these hailstones are falling out of nowhere. But here's the thing to notice. At the end of the day, it says, more died from the hailstones than were killed by the sword. Now, just review what's going on here. God throws the enemy into a panic. The, the nation of Israel is obeying God, and they're fighting according to his command. And, and then Joshua makes this audacious, unheard of, over-the-top, bizarre, out-of-the-box prayer request. Sun stands still. God honors that request. But at the end of the day, the battle was still bigger than Joshua, Joshua's abilities. It was even still bigger than his audacious prayers. And, and this shows us something amazing. It shows us that God can bring help even when we don't know what to ask for. Isn't that good? Joshua tried something bold for God. Joshua did all that he could. And then God showed up and he made all the difference going beyond not only Joshua's natural abilities, but even beyond Joshua's prayers. And friends, do you see this is the life of faith? I do all that I can do in God's strength. I pray and I ask for what I know to ask for. But in the end, I can count on God to do the rest. In the end, I do what I can do, but then God comes through and God gives help I didn't even know to ask for. What if that is what we need here? What we need right now. We should obey God all that we can. We should pray for all that we can. We should serve in any way that we can, but in the end, it still will not be sufficient for the task God has called us to. But that's okay. Because we serve the God The God who throws down large hailstones from heaven, even when we didn't know to ask for them, even when we didn't know that we needed them. Is that good news today, friends? You know, sometimes, according to God's word, Romans 8, 26, we don't even know what to pray for. We don't even know what to ask for. But the good news is God knows what we need. God knows what we need, and what God does in those moments is he just, he just, he's just God, and he's just amazing. And he meets whatever needs we have in incredible ways that honor and glorify his name. So these are some life walkthroughs. 
God has put them in his words so that we can use them today. And so as you leave today, just let me remind you, do not let sin short-circuit God's power and blessing in your life. But if you do, remember you can always trust in God's grace and mercy to forgive you and give you a second chance. Always depend on God for all your decisions in life, praying for his wisdom. But even if you forget sometimes, you can know that God still works and God works best when we trust him enough to make audacious requests. This is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord for us. And all God's people say, amen.